0: Mr. Michael Voris, in regards to the sense of the sacred, how do we lose it, Uh, what has been lost along the way, how can we recover it, you've been speaking and writing and teaching about this subject for a long time uh, from various different angles. So I thought you were the perfect person to speak to about this. So what are some of the immediate things for you that comes to mind when you think about How do we lose the sense of the sacred?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. I think one of the uh, approaches, and I always start with a big picture and then work my way down from there. Uh, When we speak of the sacred, yes, there is, I think, in man. Man is created with a sense of uh, being able to plug into the sacred. So we have sort of the gift of awe. For example, you know, there, there is something uh, in the natural order, but begins to spill over into the supernatural when you look at, for example, just a remarkable awe-inspiring sunset. You know The clouds are orange and beautiful pink and there's streaks of light and there's, you know, my dog Rebel doesn't look at that and have any sense of awe. We do. We humans can look at something and see an incredible beauty and be moved by it so yes we do have within us a uh, uh, something that can be all inspiring which begins to touch on the sacred after all that beautiful canvas of that sunset i just described only god can paint a picture like that on the sky Um, but moving beyond just the sense of it how do you plug into it in a more tangible real affect my life day to day Way, uh, partially that has to be a gift. People have to give that to you. Um, it's one thing to stand there with an atheist, and you both have the same. Wow, that's just a beautiful sky. Isn't that is a gorgeous sunset? Look at those beautiful colors—orange, pink, you know, red—all streaked across the sky. And you'll just go, yeah, yeah, that's really pretty. Look at that. But you've got to be able to then turn to him and say, yeah, and that's the handiwork of the Creator. It's not just enough to have a sense of beauty and awe. You have to then be able to take it down into yourself. And it has to be given to you. And you also have to be able to receive it in the sense of um, embrace truth enough to be able to connect the dots, so to speak. I think one of the great failings of the church leadership, not the church. The church is the indefectible bride of Christ. However, that beautiful gift of indefectibility and the bride of Christ is put into the hands of sloppy humans, and uh, that, that's where things start <laughs> to like blow up. Um, uh, there is, of course, and we've talked about it for going on 20 years almost now, this great failure on the part of church leaders uh, to be able to uh, articulate the glory and the beauty of certain, well, of pr- certain, practically every teaching that there is, uh, which inspires a sense of the sacred. I mean, what is the sacred? I mean, it comes from that root word, "sacra," holy, uh, uh, so that we can um, ultimately become holier ourselves. But because that also involves ourselves, it can't, you can't just dump everything at the feet of the bishops. You can certainly dump a lot of it, <laughs> and we've done that. But there's also the flip side of that. You have to realize that there is this yearning inside you, inside each of us, for the sacred. And if you aren't getting it here, well, then you got to go pursue it somewhere else or, or begin to look for it. You have to sort of stare in the mirror and say, wow, why, am I, why is there this hole in me? Uh, there seems to be more to life than just this kind of material existence. Uh, how do I reach out to that? Well, um, and this is one of the reasons when I think we look at, for example, the liturgy wars that seem to be so prevalent in the church these days. Uh, you know, it, uh, have the, uh, has the mass in many, many parishes been kind of dumbed down and uh, desacralized? Not as the mass itself. I mean, the, the Eucharist happens; it's confected. That's Jesus' real presence on the altar. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the the kind of accoutrement that goes along with that: the bongo drums, the you know, the the shaking of those things that go. I what they are? What are those those uh, things are called? Uh, you know, guitars, off key voices, so all that sort of stuff. Is that the? Uh, uh, ha- has that contributed to the desacralization? of the mass and people's sense of the sacred well sure uh of course it has what else would you expect it to be some people would make the case and i'd probably be if not directly in that camp i'd certainly be very close to it at least have a foot and a half in it uh and say that in many cases it was done on purpose the sort of desacralization of the mass was done specifically to water down the faith um uh, on the other hand there is a uh Counter-reaction to that, where there is only one way to engage in the sacred, to tap into the sacred, when I'm talking about specifically liturgy, and that is unless you go to the Latin Mass, the traditional Latin Mass, then it simply doesn't, it, it, it's ineffective, and not everything else is a failure. It's a well, you know, I was a, a big fan of history, big student of history. If that was the case that all you need is just the Latin Mass and everything else falls into place, then why did everything fall apart when there was nothing but the Latin Mass? Uh, that's, that's a very important question to ask. So yes, you can turn to and look as individual lay people, you can turn and look at the church leaders and say, you miserable lot, you've denied us this, you've denied us that, you've desacralized this, you've desacralized it. Okay, but that doesn't take the responsibility uh, matter of fact, it increases the onus on the part of the faithful to say, "Well, I now need to pick up and I need to go get what I'm not being given." And I don't really think there was a great sense or urgency about that when things fell apart. Uh, fell apart roughly the 1960s, but you know, the 1960s didn't pop out of the sky and fall down here from Mars. Uh, what was going on in the 40s and the 50s? Uh, uh, um, American church attendance. Uh, prior to the Second Vatican Council here in the United States was only 75%. Now, that sounds dramatic, and it is, compared to today's dismal numbers of 25%. It's inverted. That said, one out of every four Catholics in the United States, long before Vatican II was ever mentioned, didn't go to Mass. And who are you talking about here? You're talking about the children, and in some cases, the immigrants themselves from Europe, but certainly the children and absolutely the grandchildren of the immigrants, of Catholic immigrants, Irish, Italian, Poles. One out of four not going to Mass on Sunday, when, again, there was nothing but the Latin Mass. So uh, I think this is a failure uh, of the Church writ large, of the bishops to give of the people to want, to need, to understand. Uh, you know. Ultimately, I think it it ends with the bishops. They're the leaders, and they're the people who need to be standing up there saying, blah, 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 and this is what you need to do, and here's the teachings. Look at the beauty, and you know, you're know, talking about your eternal salvation, folks. We need to have, be having that and saying that all the time. Uh, why was Bishop Sheen so popular on TV in the 1950s? He was... Yes, he was speaking about specific points, teaching points and the extrapolations of them and that sort of thing about the Catholic faith, but he was the number one rated show on television for essentially three years in a row, three TV seasons in a row. And why? Because ultimately everything he was talking about went back to this this thing of the sacred and it made sense because if, if the sacred is about holiness and holiness is about God, then it's about order and peace and tranquility. Not that your life on earth is going to be absent crosses and pains in the butt and day to day, all that. Of course it will be. But it's this having a sense of the sacred gives you the ability to be able to weather through those things. That's the point. So that if you are uh, uh, in a uh, a, a longing, a state of longing for holiness uh, That you will um, These horrible things that happen in life Will be able to be dealt with Because you're able to put them in the context of eternity And I really think that's what the sacred uh, Accomplishes for uh, souls, strictly Catholic souls But when you're not ever really speaking of eternity at least in any uh, direct, formal, continual sense, heaven and hell and purgatory, when you're not speaking about the afterlife, nor are you really, bishops are not speaking about the afterlife, nor are people thinking in those terms. I I think that creates an enormous gulf between the, Uh, uh, the the world of the sacred, because that's ultimately what it's about. All of this here on earth is really just kind of having an apartment. We're just here temporarily leasing whatever our life circumstances are. And then we pass on, you know, when it's over, we pass on into, well, hopefully we pass on into the sacred, but one way or the other, we're done here. Uh, uh, But... If something isn't being given to you that you have a need for, which it isn't, let's be very blunt here, it's not, hasn't been for decades by the bishops, here and there, sure, but not in any meaningful, lasting, uh, life-changing way, uh, then it's up to you to go get it and understand that. that you know, as, as, as the Lord God says, you know, I've written my law on your hearts. So some of these things are more easily pursued when you have good leaders presenting them to you and reminding them of you. And we hear this all the time from various people who go to very good parishes, some of them traditional Latin mass parishes, others very reverent Novus Ordo parishes. But being honest, even if you were to take all of those good parishes, whichever form of the liturgy, ordinary, extraordinary, whatever it is they're offering, collectively, that's a pretty small percentage. Most people are going to Mass in their finest beachwear uh, every, uh <laughs> every Sunday. You ain't going to get a lot of sacred when, uh, you know, your first concern is do your flip-flops match.
0: <laughs> so, Mr. Boris, one point you had mentioned earlier, I like your succinct definition of sacred, you just said simply sacra, you said well, it's holiness. And when you said that, I thought about you know, what the scriptures say. I think as Isaiah. You know, God is not only holy, he's <laughs> holy, holy, holy. And that, that that caused me to think about one thing that I want to ask you, see to tie in what you have said. So if God is and he is holy, that's that's the first principle of holiness, and everything that he creates flows from that. What decrease is good. But if we deny, if we or we don't recognize, if we don't have a sense of the fact that God is holy, I wonder, does that mean therefore follow that? well if we, if we were denying that then what we may try to do therefore is in order to now try to kill what is holy meaning that we may um uh, when we sense something sense something that we do not recognize our natural response is to fear it in a negative way and i thought about the obviously the most extreme example of man trying to kill god is christ on the cross but in other ways we do try to kill god i think it happens to the abortion, um, the shout-your-abortion movement that's going on, like, let's kill God. Um, the transgender movement, the the war industry, you know, war as a, as a profit center. We see that, not, not war of self-defense, but let's start some wars to make some money. Um, the sex slave trade. So, this, so the denial of virtue, the denial of the sacred, the rejection of holiness— is that what we're trying to do? Or are we just trying to kill God and not know it? What do you think? Uh,
1: it's a very interesting take. I, I would suggest that in with some individuals, yes, uh, that is part of maybe a master plan. Uh, but I think for the most part, the average Joe walking around on the street is just sort of living his life and is indifferent to the holy, which I would— Kind of posit might be even more dangerous than uh, the handful of people who actually hate uh, religion, hate God, hate order and peace and morals. And you know, there's something wrong up here with them, like they're something's completely off, like a serial killer is just off. Uh, You know, there's got to be something off. With, uh, I mean, I, when I was watching Sound of Freedom, I saw it a couple of times when I was watching that. And, you're, you know, there's just obviously they're actors, but they're portraying a real thing. Um, these dudes who are driving the trucks around and driving, you know, the putting, kids, shoving the kids in the uh, the, uh, the tractor trailers. I mean, those guys aren't, you know, there's something off with that. You're looking at a little eight-year-old boy or a little eight-year-old girl who's screaming and crying and terrified. And you're completely unmoved by it at all. To so somebody's going to give you a hundred dollars to, you know, per head that you throw, you know, twenty kids in the back of a van or something. So there are those sorts of people, absolutely. Uh, wh- whatever has happened in their life to bring them to that point where they emit zero empathy for even a terrified child, I don't know. Uh, but how, in order for that person to be able to do that, how many thousands and tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people are just indifferent to it? They're like, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, And then they you know, go off and do whatever they do. So I think the indifference uh, to the holy it just doesn't hit your radar, uh, I think is a much more troublesome thing because many, many, many more people by giant magnitudes are impacted by that. And uh, uh, and so how does all this other stuff arrive? Well, remember, this isn't kind of a zero-sum thing here. I mean, there's not just God and then goofy humans, some of whom are com- completely nuts. I mean, there's another being. <laughs> there's another intelligence at work here that is literally hell-bent on using the... Cor- not corrupted, the... Um, Uh, fallen nature of man to bring about man's demise. Uh, So part of that would involve eh, just being different towards God, which would mean everything that falls from God, holiness, uh, uh, sanctity, uh, uh, the the sense of the sacred reverence, all of that stuff. He can't entirely shut off everything about our human nature that has some good to it. Uh, he, He doesn't have that power. Uh, so he'll never be able to uh, make a normal person look at that sunset and be completely unmoved by it if they are a person who is moved by that. Uh, he won't be able to um, so destroy uh, the interior of a person that if they uh, are moved by a piece of sacred music, for example, there is a yearning that God has put into people, put into us, for him. St. Augustine, the famous line, you know, our hearts are empty, O Lord, and they shall are at peace, and they'll never find peace until they rest in you. Until that happens. So there is this constant thing like that. and it, it's, it's always baffled me when I think about the failure on the part of the hierarchy and so many clergy. Yeah, you're beginning with fallen human nature, but you're beginning with fallen human nature that hasn't even deeper dimension to it, and that is a longing for God, a longing for the good, a longing for truth. That's the foundational aspect of human nature. So a little four-year-old or a three-year-old is like, hey, daddy, why is the sky blue? They want to know just our own nature. Sure, fallen and all of that, but that doesn't, as Martin Luther would make us believe or propose to us and completely eradicate anything and we're completely suck and we're just, you know, heaps of dung with snow over the top. Um, No, we are, much of the good that God created us with is still there. And to just simply ignore that and not reach into those aspects of the human dynamic and appeal to that. That dynamic was placed there by Almighty God, so you would think His shepherds, guys who are good, (laughs) uh, would appeal to that. And it's it's very easy to look at certain aspects of human nature, the good, the dynamic, the, the good dynamic of it, and have a conversation about it. Where does this come from? Why does that sunset move me? What, you know, why? I, many of my friends will know that you quite frequently I'm just sitting around watching my my wonderful doggy, Rebel. He's a white husky with the most stunning blue eyes you can imagine. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it, looking at him. And quite often it's just, wow, his innocence is so incredible uh, to behold and just watch and kind of ponder at and uh, ponder over. Just like, going wow, look at that. Uh, we're built like that. (laughs) We're built like that with that capacity on purpose. So why can't you talk about these kinds of things? And there is a way to get to the sacred that doesn't have to be somebody pounding out Mozart on an organ. (laughs) Not that pounding out Mozart on an organ is bad, but there are certain just very simplistic ways of uh, speaking of the holy and the sacred uh, that would appeal to anybody.
0: (laughs) That's a beautiful point about we have capacity for God. I was, I was struck when I when I became Catholic and I noticed I was like the first couple, that was the first section in the catechism, this whole, this chapter on capacity for God, which is a strange thing to say that the finite has capacity for the infinite. It's such a such a thing really to, to consider. But you, you had mentioned that temptation, and I wanted to tie this in because you are the, the 27th person in this series, if you're listening to this lesson, you're a student, you may not notice that, um, because L- Elizabeth Yor comes after Michael Vorce, but <laughs> in alphabetical, but Michael was the last, and you may have heard that that not a whole lot of people have spoke about the works of Satan, so I wanted to spend some time with, with Michael here, because he's just the person to speak about this, because um, he has a devotion to St. Archangel Michael. So, Michael, Mr. Michael Vor's temptation, you know, from the world, the flesh, and the de- devil, it would try to take that capacity that we have for God and try to, um, through sin, through our sin, we would um, hinder our capacity. Um, it may shrink it altogether if we keep going down this, this path. It, it becomes harder for us to though we were created with this capacity for the divine, for the sacred, um, the world of flesh and the devil will come in and try to harm that capacity, make it leak or something like that. So I want to, I want to know if you can talk about that and, and tie it in, how is the world of flesh and the devil, especially in a world that we have with us today, what are these, these, uh, what is temptation doing from these world flesh and the devil that's, that's trying to uh, block us or hinder us in some way from, from having this sense of the sacred. Uh,
1: well, on staying with the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, there are, uh, while we do have our capacity for God, uh, and I would even go so far as to say a longing for uh, and a desire for, in many cases, perhaps it wouldn't be cast as a in, by the person as a desire for God, but it is a desire for the things of God that only God Himself can provide, uh, which is Himself. Uh, on the other side of humanity, or humanness, is uh, the desire for the immediate and. It, anybody, I think, who's trying to lead a good, faithful Catholic life or a good, faithful Christian life, as much as they understand it to be, uh, will understand that for the most part, um, you know, the Catholic life or the uh, Christian life, yeah, it's not really that exciting. <laughs> you know, it's not like every day is a drama. Uh, there may be moments here and there, of course, but you know, the I, a, a peaceful life. The, the more kind of dramatic things are, uh, you know. I mean, think about the think about the drama that ensues as a result of sin. Uh, you know, whatever it is. I mean, if you have this desire in you to have the things that are good of life, okay, that's a God thing. But now you go and try to fill that with something of the world, which means robbing a bank, <laughs> and then you go rob a bank. Okay, now you have a lot of drama in your life. The FBI's chasing you, you have to go steal the right car, you're gonna have to shoot and kill somebody. Now you've got to run around and wonder, are you gonna get brought up on, you know, uh, homicide charges? You're gonna go which prison you're gonna go to, you're gonna get in a standout and the shoot. That's the kind of drama you don't want in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you were successful getting out the getting out the bank with the bag, <laughs> now there's a whole other thing that comes along. This is how they're able to make sequels and prequels and movies because the drama never ends. Uh, so as you're walking through the world uh, stuff, um, you know it's going to bring a certain drama. The the the, uh, the desire for God brings about a tranquility and a peace. Uh, and and the pursuit, largely successful, but obviously people fall and sin and do whatever, but the, the moving down that line, that trajectory is much less, for the most part, much less drama-laden than the person who is not on that path. Uh, you know, m- most people who go to uh, most faithful Catholics who go to mass on Sunday and you know go to frequent confession and receive holy communion, these people probably are not sitting uh, in uh, you know drug rehab centers and uh, you know being detoxified and uh, you know having lost their fortunes and whatever. Uh, there's, a, there's a there's a natural order reward for being on the correct supernatural path not perfect. I'm not trying to preach prosperity gospel or anything like that. There is a secession of the awful drama uh, that results from sin in the person's life who's trying to lead as much as they can on any given moment as a sin-free life, a holy life. Uh, That's just the world. Now if you move over to the flesh, okay, well now we're talking about, I don't want to think about uh, the flesh as just in terms of uh, sexual sins, which of course are enormous and you know huge and all of that, but when we talk about the flesh. We talk about a, sort of the the things that uh, inure to us because we are of matter, and we are subject to things like that uh, uh, because of that aspect of our human nature that we are flesh and blood, and we have chemicals and organs in us. And those organs may not work sometimes, and you're subject to disease. And uh, all of those things affect the spiritual nature. Uh, A a very good friend of mine's wife was in uh, 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 the hospital with COVID back in the day. And I I found it very interesting that she said uh, at one point, um, after the fact, that while she was there, He was a good practicing Catholic, loves the faith, loves the truth, all that stuff. And uh, while she was there, she said, I couldn't pray. I was so weak. I was so just exhausted and wiped out. I couldn't even actually pray. And this is a prayerful woman, obviously not when she's got COVID in the hospital. And I thought, wow, I'd never actually considered that, that while you're body is so physically deteriorated that it so impacts your soul uh, that the not the desire to pray leaves you, but the ability to or it requires such a mustering of energy and strength to overcome it that you even if you are able to, you can't sustain it for you know more than a few seconds or a couple of minutes or something. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, that's certainly not a sin of the flesh. In in not a sin of the flesh, the way we think of those normally is, you know, whatever, committing adultery or, you know, the uh, gay stuff or pornography or something like that. But all of those kinds of things are in that same bucket of the flesh because our humanity is subject to a certain set of uh, uh, temptations, distractions, things that pull us away or at least... Pause us on the path to holiness. Um, so you've got the world with all its allures. I mean, is that what we say when we, you know during the uh, 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 during Easter Easter season when we're you know we instead of saying the actual creed when we make the profession of faith, but we make it at the very beginning. You know, do you reject Satan? Do you reject the glamour of sin? Look if sin and the world and all of this stuff didn't look attractive to us, nobody would do it. Uh, my favorite example is I hate Brussels sprouts and I don't care what you dress them up in or put them in or put sauce over them or cook them up or fry them or I put them in a gold dish. I ain't going to eat them. I hate Brussels sprouts. Uh, so there's no way to ever make it look attractive to me. Uh, well, that's the opposite of that is true. If something that is bad for you looks attractive, Oreo cookies, <laughs> um, you know, you don't really have to do much uh, to hold it out to somebody for them to go, ooh, snatch and take it and eat it. I mean, kind of the beginning of our fall. Uh, so the world and the flesh, and then we move over to the devil. Okay, and this is ultimately, ultimately the sort of driving force here that those other things, the world and the flesh, don't directly have an intelligent being behind them, an intelligent being perhaps using them, but that intelligent being is not the creator of those things. Uh, He is the creator in a sense. Uh, I'll put that in air quotes so nobody goes, hey, that's theologically incorrect. I'm talking about he's the bringer of uh, temptation to make us choose to move off The path to holiness. We understand that what we're doing is wrong, and we make the choice anyway uh, uh, because it's attractive to us. He knows what's attractive to us each individually. He's been watching human beings for who knows how many millennia. uh, and you know watches us from the moment we're born probably in the womb and says oh i know what that chemical makeup is that chemical makeup makes the person more inclined to be this that or the other and then he watches you and you're you know one or two and you're the little baby that like tears the toy truck away from your brother or your sister oh this one's a selfish one ah let's build on that keep the file going there on little johnny and when he finally gets to be eight nine ten twelve Let's throw something in front of him where he can actually steal something of significance from somebody. Uh, But all of these three things work in tandem. I mean, notice that when St. Paul speaks about it, he lumps them all together. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They have to be distinguished between, because there is a distinction, but they all work in tandem for our destruction if we aren't over here working on our holiness.
0: And this be my... Final question, Mr. Boris, because you, you've put together um, how we got here, some of the things that we lost along the way, and also just the, the role that temptation plays in that through the world of flesh and the devil. You painted a picture of um, things just being a mess outside of Christ, outside of the, the journey towards um, holiness. And so I wanted to ask you um, because I think the world has at times, I guess maybe have always been like a, a messy place. Um, we've went from just in the last 500 years to people thinking slavery was normal to now thinking, giving your child a some pills or some injections to change their, the appearance of, of how they look biologically. So you know, things have just always kind of been messy, but as we work to recover or, um, return to a sensitive sacred, what do you pretend as far as what can we do or in a church and as individuals to promote in a church and in a world that, 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 that sensitive sacred or, or do you think that things are going to get more messy as we go? What would you say?
1: Uh, well, on, on that large question of things getting more messy, yeah, I, I, I think that's, you know, the question kind of is as a culture or a society, and I mean of the world, not just individual countries, uh, although it does pertain specifically to the United States. Um, you know, the question is, is the bus Rocketing towards the cliff and it only has a few seconds left before it takes the plunge or has it in fact already taken the plunge? Um, and now we're just waiting for the inevitable smash and crack up at the bottom. Um, and most people probably realize that my, my personal view uh, is it's already off the cliff. Um, so that engenders the idea that okay, we aren't in save the culture mode. We're not in a search and rescue. Uh, we're in a uh, search and recovery mode. Um, you know, the person has already drowned. Now we're just looking for their body. Uh, and uh, you know, that's doom and gloomy. And maybe that's my Irish personality, my Irish background. I don't know. But I, mean, I just look around the culture and say, "Wow." Now how do you convince some of these people? You know, and you know, and. Generation after generation now is is there with the exception of a few numbers do matter. They're not completely immaterial. Uh, they may not be as important in the war when people go well. You know, you know, battling Jericho. You know, God, the Lord God stripped away thirty thousand, knocked it down to you know time, and finally there were like you know twelve guys uh, or three hundred. Um, well, yeah, but there were still three hundred. <laughs> Uh, it's not like there was nobody. So, when you they do matter, you do have to have sufficient numbers to be able to get things done and turned around. Um, our Lord didn't have one apostle, He had 12. Uh, you know, they didn't have just one disciple each, they had you know, developed, you know, little networks of disciples. Um, so, uh, I, I don't know as we sit here today looking out on the world and the culture. I don't know that we have sufficient numbers of people to think in terms of recovering the culture. I think, uh, I'm sorry, rescuing the culture. So, you know, which camp I suppose you would fall into raises the question, okay, so then what would you, what do you do? Do you think that there's some sort of effort here to be able to just restore things the way they are? Uh, just go back. You know, all we have to do is just get that guy voted out of office and get that law changed and everything's fine. And look what happened when Roe got overturned. Now we've forced people's hands in, was it, nine states to by solid majorities. Yeah, let's kill every kid we can possibly get our hands on. Um, obviously there are some states that, you know, did the opposite. Uh, they didn't actually have votes on them, but their legislatures did or their own state Supreme Courts did. I'd be curious what would happen if you go to a supposedly deep red state and put the question in front of the voters in a deep red state. Those deep red voters vote for very conservative lawmakers. But if the single individual question is asked, should Jane be allowed to kill her child if she feels whatever, or she's in some horrible set of circumstances? I don't know that the numbers are going to be like 70%. No, we support life. Uh, I would hope they would be, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know uh so if we're going to be thinking of ourselves in trying to help people become holy in terms of uh restoring and recovering uh that becomes a different framework and it becomes a this we have to understand and accept and embrace the the really dire circumstances we are in Not just say, well, you know, maybe another election cycle will do it. Maybe, you know, maybe this particular guy is going to come along or that particular woman is going to come along or there's going to be this great cardinal or whatever. I think we're beyond that. Um, It's difficult to get your brain around because it, first of all, is horrible to consider. Secondly, it also now places the onus on us as individuals. Can anybody get on, get into a pulpit and say all of this stuff and keep pounding it? Well, yeah. I mean, you do that kind of work. We do this kind of work. There are other Catholics engaged in that kind of work. But, it's, you know, it's the old Dr. Seuss Horton hears a who. <laughs> I mean, all of this is going on inside a little village of, you know, the Whoville, buried inside, I think it was a dandelion. Uh, and they have to scream their lungs out, bloody murder, in order for elephant ears Horton to actually begin to hear something. Uh so I kind of think that's where we are. In the meantime, in Whoville, <laughs> uh, we need to continue to support each other and explain things to each other and make it a—to a, uh, a, a to make the faith and the sacred uh, relevant to help us who are still in the battle, uh, who are going to have— to clean up the mess. That bus, whether it's gone off the cliff or it's on the way, it's going off the cliff, that's going to be one heck of a mess that needs cleaning up. Once that crashes and the whole thing has done and whatever that looks like and the culture and the day-to-day, that is going to be one ugly scene, just like the collapse of the Roman Empire was, and just like the it took centuries to restore uh, any semblance of Uh, the measure of human dignity, the barbarians were, you know, those weren't, they they weren't great people, (laughs) uh, that, that it took centuries to raise up Western Catholic civilization from four or five centuries. And even then it's not like, you know, on the uh, year 800, all of a sudden everything was fine. I mean, this went on for a long time afterwards. Western Catholic civilization existed, and then the Vikings came rolling down the rivers and you know destroying things left and right. Uh, you know for another 150 years. So there is a uh, uh, a realization, a, an embrace of reality that I really think most people don't want to do. It's much easier to think if we do this little bit of stuff here, and we go count the votes there, and we sit in this polling place there. And I'm not saying don't do any of that. I'm saying you have to do that. There's a moral obligation because all those efforts are directed towards the truth. And if, if in some way they can at least pump the brakes, slow down the bus falling, crashing, whatever it is, you have to do this. This is the natural order of things, and you must be engaged in it. We aren't just pure spirits floating around. Likewise, we aren't just bodies sitting around either. We're both. We're that composite. That's the way God created it. So we have a duty to fight in the natural order as well as the supernatural order. And very rarely is it possible to fight in the supernatural order absent the natural. You have a mouth. You have a brain. You have to Actively read this book. Click on that thing. Read this, whatever it is. Speak to this person. Have that discussion. All of that, while it's uh, while it's spiritual, ultimately, it's all happening in the course of the material order. And so, you know, do you you need to get your rest? You need to devote a certain amount of time. You only have twenty four hours a day. You have to devote a certain amount of your time to learning about whatever this particular thing is. Is there somebody that you want to, I don't know, you want to uh, uh, go to some movie or something for two or three hours and yet you find yourself involved in a discussion with somebody who's asking of the things of the spirit. Well, guess what? You don't get to go to the movie. You know, probably go to it tomorrow night or whatever. But uh, there really has to be a full embrace and understand that the, the, the recovery of... The culture is going to be on a person by person basis, and I don't want to be you know trite and say you know brick by brick, but this is how the faith was built. This is how it was built, and and at great personal cost to many of the individuals involved in it. And all of the apostles, the exception of John, who at some point probably wished he'd been martyred because he got treated so horribly. The other eleven get martyred uh, horribly. Uh, And John didn't have too much of a, you know, just because he didn't get his head chopped off doesn't mean life wasn't tough. Uh, So, um, uh, you know, you think about, you know, St. Irenaeus. I mean, all of these, you know, all of them, all the great sufferings that these people went through just so they could go talk to an individual or a very small number of individuals. Uh, Mass communication about the faith works, like Bishop Sheen going back 70 years, works if you have a willing audience to listen to. They don't need the one-on-one from you in the sense that somebody who's perhaps in a desperate part of their life because of the culture today might. So again, I'm not saying give up the mass communication. I'm not saying that's what we do. (laughs) I'm not saying give that up. I'm not saying don't go involve yourself in the uh the the material order politics and all of that i'm saying that needs to be added to now uh so that you can you you've got to put another arrow in your quiver uh which ultimately i think will prove to be the biggest most important one where you can sit and talk to individuals may not be glamorous you're not going to be able to say like bishop sheen hundreds of thousands of people i was the number one tv show in the history of humanity and you know, beat out everybody, and look at all these hundreds of thousands of people. Okay, well, those thats those are the circumstances and the blessings and the graces that our Lord afforded to you know Fulton Sheen. Those aren't the ones he's giving us. Uh, those are not the ones that would be effective today. You know, the last thing you want from God is a grace that you can't really use. <laughs> and that's why he doesn't give them to us. Uh, so I, I would imagine people sitting around today, right now, uh, when we're doing this interview uh, here in America, uh, don't, haven't really been given the graces for a bloody martyrdom because c- it isn't happening, at least not yet. If it comes to pass, well then you'll get that grace if you're deserving of it and uh, have merited it and God so accords you it. Uh, but you have to work with what you've got at any given time and right now the culture does not want to uh, hear any of this. So you can't really argue back against the culture and expect you're gonna really move the needle. You have to argue because the truth always needs defense, always. The truth ultimately is Christ and Christ is always worth defending. However, while that is also going on, you are talking to individuals or very small little groups of people uh, who through your prudential judgment, you've discerned, uh, you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, most of the time, rightly, these people deserve some of my time so that I can speak with them about the truth and that's how you're you're building for the future you're not getting another republican voter there so that one vote can be the difference of <laughs> getting a good governor in the state you're building for the future so that that person will grow and uh if they have children likely uh, or at least they have friends you're you're throwing that seed around the field it's going to take a few Years, maybe generations, for it to take root. Uh, but you, know, you wonder when Peter was upside down on the cross uh, in what is now, you know, at the time, was uh, you know Vaticanus Nero's Circus, would he have ever imagined at that instant that you know 300 years later there'd be a basilica there named after him, and Catholicism would have won out and actually become the you know, the the religion of the empire. Probably not. I'm guessing prob- that's not probably the thought that was passing through his head as he was there upside down.
0: Mr. Michael Voris, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on recovering the sacred. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, David. Much appreciated. God bless you.